All righty. Well, it's good to see you all. It's been a while. Glad to be back. My wife Annabelle and I are happy to be here. Uh, yeah, we were actually in the States for, uh, for a little bit there and uh, visiting family and friends and all. And, uh, you know, it's, it's cool, you know, of course we were there and we were sharing about what we were doing with uh, Trails Church. Um, but I also got to tell them about this other church that we had visited uh, and tell them the story of Trinity Fellowship. And I just want you to know that there are some folks that we got to meet and were encouraged to hear about your story, that we were, there's an even younger church plant that we were partnering with in ministry as well. And uh, man, I'm also really excited that it's your first anniversary uh, Sunday. Uh, can't believe that I'm the one you guys picked to preach on the anniversary Sunday. You know, your pastor is very kind to me. Matt, Matt said beforehand, no pressure, just make sure to hit it out of the park. I'm like, yeah, okay, you got it, you got it, brother. But anyway, I, you know, I'm, I'm also really excited. You guys have been, you know, marching through the Sermon on the Mount, and here we are. We, you made it to the end, end of the Sermon on the Mount. We've made it through, and I, I hope you all have benefited from this careful walk through this incredible text, um, because next week, you're coming down off the mountain. But before we come down the mountain, Jesus has some final words for us. And there is something somewhat humorous to me about Jesus' concluding works in the ser- uh, words in the Sermon on the Mount because uh, our text for today, Matthew uh, 27, 24 through 29, Jesus speaks about building your house on two different kinds of foundations. And I just kind of find it funny because like, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, laying foundations be something you talk about first? Wouldn't you want to talk about foundations at, at the beginning? But here Jesus talks about building on one of two foundations, not at the beginning of his message, but at the end. And I find this maybe counterintuitiveness to be rather interesting and effective. And of course, there is a specific purpose in mind. Think about it like this. Most of us are pretty self-assured about what is the solid foundation on which we can build our lives. We think we know, right? And those who first heard Jesus' words thought they were building their lives on a solid foundation too. But what has Jesus told them? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has presented foundational wisdom. Truths that must be the bedrock of our lives. And contrary to what those listening had thought was foundational wisdom... Before he concludes his, his message, before they all come down the mountain, Jesus leaves his listeners with a decision that they will be forced to make. And even though the Sermon on the Mount does not end with a question, implicit from this text, Jesus asks of his listeners, All right, you have heard my words. Upon which foundation will you build your life now? Now before we go any further... I want us to read our passage for today. And so if you are able, I ask that you please stand as we read God's word. Matthew 7, starting at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would be with us now as we uh, hear from your word, that you would uh, convict us of what, that which we need to be convicted of, that you would uh, give me clarity of speech, that um, there would also be uh, understanding uh, for those listening, and not just an understanding that uh, you know, they get what I'm saying, but a, a deep uh, rooting of your truth that we would not be merely hearers of your word, but doers also, as Jesus reminds us here. We ask that in his name, amen. So now, in this passage, Jesus describes two responses to his message, one wise and one foolish, each with a different outcome. However, in order to understand what these responses are and what these foundations are, we must understand this passage within its larger context. So that's what's first on the agenda this morning. Here is where we are going. We will be reviewing where we have come from in the Sermon on the Mount, then what Jesus is saying by concluding his message in this way, and lastly, what the original listener's response was and what our response should be today. All right, so we have a lot of work to do if we are to move beyond our Sunday school song understanding of this passage. You know, wise man built his house upon the rock. You know, we want to move past that a little bit. And I don't know if you were like me, but for a long time I thought this passage was just talking about how we live. If we listen to Jesus, we are wise and we build on the rock. But if we don't listen to him, we are fools who build on the sand. And your life will turn out better when troubles come if you listen to what Jesus has said uh, than if you don't. That's a Sunday school level understanding, and it's a pretty shallow one at that. And for a long time, that's really all I thought this passage was talking about. But on the one hand, this Sunday school level understanding is true to some extent. If you listen to Jesus' wisdom and pattern your life after what he has said, you will be building on a solid foundation that can keep you standing when trials come. That is true. That is true. But that is not the main point of this text. That may be an application we can draw from this passage, but the main point Jesus is making is so much more significant, and we can understand that main point from understanding both the immediate context and the larger context. So first, let's look all the way back to the beginning of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 15, form the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And even from just reading the intro, we can quickly come to understand the theme for the whole sermon, that being the kingdom of heaven. And moving on into the first main body section of the Sermon on the Mount, 
we soon get Jesus' main idea sentence for the whole sermon in verse 20. So verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the whole theme of the Sermon on the Mount. The kind of righteousness that is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. The kind of righteousness that is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we discussed some last time I was here, the Jewish people thought they understood exactly the kind of righteousness necessary for them to get into the kingdom. So the whole section of chapter 5, uh, 16 through 48, Jesus demonstrates that their understanding of the law is insufficient. The Pharisees' understanding of good law-keeping cannot help you meet the standard of righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because what does Jesus say that standard is? Look at verse 48. The standard of righteousness is the Father's perfection. Just a gut punch. And it's supposed to be. And in the next major section of the sermon, it gets even worse for the self-righteous. As Jesus outlines in chapter 6, what a kingdom's citizen's practice of righteousness should look like, And further, what kind of perspectives kingdom citizens should have. So by the time we reach chapter 7, verse 12, which begins the major concluding section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has outlined a completely contrary way of practicing righteousness from how the Jews and Pharisees understood it, concerned more about the kingdom of heaven and its rewards than what can be gained in this world, And he has outlined a contrary understanding of the law. An understanding which finds the law's fulfillment in him. Some pretty controversial stuff. So now, in the last major section of the sermon, you have seen over the last few weeks that Jesus has been teaching on different sets of twos. Two gates with two ways. Two trees with different kinds of fruit. Two kinds of professors, each with a different claim. And finally, now, two kinds of builders, each building on a different foundation. Now, this rhetorical style of argumentation, of presenting two ways, is very common throughout the Old Testament. The way of wisdom, or the way of folly. Or the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. This theme is found all over the, New, the Old Testament, and most commonly in Proverbs, but maybe most famously in Psalm 1. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. From this example, we see that this presentation of the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked is not merely about the quality or outcome of one's life as it is lived. At its base, it tells us of one's outcome before God's judgment. And we see this very thing in the immediate context. The way is wide that leads to destruction, but the way is narrow that leads to life. 
Every tree that bears bad fruit is thrown into the fire. It is those who do the Father's will who will enter the kingdom of heaven, not all who say, Lord, Lord, for they are workers of lawlessness. Further, there is a connecting word at the beginning of verse 24, a then or therefore, meaning we are meant to see and understand the logical connection between this section and the one that came before it. So on that day, as it says in the previous section, the day of judgment, in order to avoid being found a false professor of faith, this, in our text today, is how you need to respond. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who who built his house upon the rock. Therefore, hear and obey Jesus' words. That is the solid rock we must build upon. And when the flood comes, the greatest flood of God's eternal judgment, faith in Jesus' words is the only foundation that will allow us to stand. The wise man who has built his house upon the rock of Christ, he is the one, he is the one who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to be able to see this connection, folks. This is, this is so important. In the previous section, in verse 21, please, please look there, in verse 21, who is the one who enters the kingdom? The one who does the will of the Father. Now look at verse 24. The wise man who will enter the kingdom of heaven, he does so Why? Because he hears and does these words of mine. So here, we see that astonishingly, Jesus is equating obeying the will of the Father with hearing and doing what he has said. Jesus is equating obeying the will of the Father with hearing and doing what he has said. And it is the one who obeys the Father and follows the words of Jesus who is the wise man who builds on a solid foundation, which will withstand the flood of God's judgment against sin, and he will enter the kingdom of heaven. But wait just a minute. We need to be careful here. Some of you may be thinking, Chris, Chris, got to be careful. Does this mean Jesus is teaching that that the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom is gained by works? No. No. No, he is not. But the emphasis that he is making is very important because it is not just about merely hearing. We also must be doers of what Jesus has taught. This emphasis is picked up on by Jesus' brother James. In his letter, James teaches us that we must be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. It's from James 1.22. Why? Because it is our actions that demonstrate and confirm the root of our faith. Now, why is this important? And why is this an emphasis that Jesus is making here anyway? Well, just look back at what came before. In verse 21 through 23, Jesus makes a similar contrast between saying and doing. It is not the ones who merely say, Lord, Lord, who enter the kingdom, but the ones who do the Father's will. 
It's the same, it's the same point. Do not be deceived. We don't want to be fools who have heard Jesus' words and do not put them into action like the foolish man in verse 26. Nor do we want to be those who merely say they follow Jesus' words but do not do them. Instead, it is the one who submits himself to the words of Jesus who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is the point where Jesus has been leading us this whole time. This is the final, fundamental, astonishing claim of the Sermon on the Mount. Because remember where we have come from. Like the Jews, we think that there is a kind of law-keeping that will make us righteous before God. Like the Pharisees, we think that the hypocritical practice of our righteousness, of our good works, will be to our benefit. But what, what has Jesus done? Like his original listeners, he's just taken us out at the knees. He's punched us in the gut with what he's saying. He's said, you know that standard of righteousness that you thought was attainable? Guess what? You are deceived because the standard of righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom is the standard of the Father's perfection. Obedience to the letter of the law will get you nowhere. And even though we aren't concerned about our obedience to the law of Moses like them, we still need to hear and understand this message. Because every culture and every person has a law of their own design. Every person has that list, that list of things that they think approves them before, before God and makes them good. That list is different from culture to culture and person to person, but we all have that impulse deep in our hearts of self-righteousness and self-approval. Maybe you think it's just about trying your best and that God is a really nice guy who will just kind of let you off with a pass as long as you don't do what you think are maybe really bad things. Maybe you think that as long as you let everyone do their thing and say you do you to every situation, that that's the kind of attitude God will approve of. Or maybe you think that this world is just going down the tubes and you need to work as hard as you can to make it better in whatever way you think is best. If that's the social realm, the political realm, economic or environmental realms, whatever it is, it is your mission in life to make the world better. But as you, by your own personal law, think is best. And that is what you think will make you right before God if, if he even were to judge you. You know, we might also call this kind of life building on a foundation of sand. But here's the thing. Jesus says to all of us, it, it doesn't matter what kind of law you think you need to obey. The standard of righteousness is God's perfection, and you don't measure up. But the good news is that Jesus does not leave us up a creek without a paddle. He tells us exactly where that righteousness is found. In himself. 
This is the conclusion where the whole sermon has been leading. Jesus' words are the only place where the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom is found. Jesus' words are the only place where the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom is found. Bible teacher Don Carson summarizes it this way. The sermon ends with what has been implicit throughout it. The demand for radical submission to the exclusive lordship of Jesus, who fulfills the law and the prophets and warns the disobedient that the alternative to total obedience, true righteousness, and the life uh, in the kingdom is rebellion, self-centeredness, and eternal damnation. If this has been implicit throughout, as Carson suggests, where can we see this? So I want to look at one example of that. Look back with me at chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. We'll just read those first. Chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. In verse 10, Jesus says that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake will enter the kingdom of heaven. This begs the question, Who are these people? Who are these kingdom citizens? Look again at verse 10. Those who will enter the kingdom are persecuted for righteousness' sake, but in verse 11, Jesus says that those kingdom citizens are persecuted on account of himself. So even in the introduction to the sermon, Jesus is identifying himself as the source of where the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom is found. And that those who are marked by their identification with him and are persecuted for it, those are the marks of a citizen of the kingdom. So again, what was implicit in the introduction to the sermon is now made clear now that we have reached its conclusion. The righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven is only found in believing and doing the words of Jesus. The righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven is only found in believing and doing the words of Jesus. And as I mentioned earlier, even though Jesus does not ask a question directly to his audience, his conclusion does necessitate our response. Which foundation are you going to build on? The solid rock of Jesus' words or the sand of human wisdom? And the foundation of sand is no foundation at all. Just as human wisdom, in view of God's judgment, is no wisdom at all. It's foolishness. And lastly, as I mentioned earlier also, even though this passage's main point has to do with final judgment, It does not need to be limited to that when we look at the application of this passage. Okay, so to to be clear, we're moving now from interpretation to an application of this passage. The wise man builds his house to withstand anything, 
not only the flood of God's judgment, and besides, if the house is able to withstand uh, the flood of God's judgment against sin, it will be able to withstand any flood we might experience before then. For the words of Jesus provide for us a solid foundation to withstand any trial we might also experience in this life as well. But we don't, we don't want to misapply this text. Unlike the foolish man, the wise man avoids the destruction of the house he has built. But what, what doesn't the wise man avoid? Well, regardless of what foundation you build upon, either way, the rains and the floods, they're coming. This is where we need, we need to be careful. It is all too easy for us to build, to buy into this kind of theology that thinks, oh, well, if I live like Jesus tells me and I follow what he teaches, then I'll avoid trials. Not at all. Following what Jesus has said and planting yourself firmly on the foundation of his righteousness does not mean that you will avoid trouble. Quite the opposite. But you will be able to withstand it. So let us be warned and reminded not to wrongly assume that because Jesus gives us a solid foundation for our lives that we will avoid trials and troubles. If anything, what what has Jesus said? That the citizens of the kingdom will be persecuted and experience greater trial on account of the one in whom they have placed their trust. So this is where Jesus ends his sermon. How, How will you respond? Will you continue to build on a foundation of sand? Or will you build your life on the rock of Christ and the righteousness found in him? And speaking of response, Matthew records for us the immediate reaction of the crowds after Jesus was finished speaking. Look at verses uh, 28 and 29 of chapter 7 again with me. I'm just going to read those again for us. Verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The people were astonished. They were shocked, flabbergasted. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority. Isn't that interesting? Why why do you think that was so shocking? Well, for starters, this authoritative teaching is contrasted with the teaching of the scribes. So first off, in, in in what way did the scribes teach then? Well, the scribes never taught anything from their own authority. Much of their training was memorizing the things other rabbis and other scribes had said before them. They interpreted the law and the prophets by saying, Rabbi so-and-so said this, but this other rabbi interpreted it this way. Everything the scribes taught was done with an appeal to an authority higher than themselves. How How did Jesus teach differently then? He didn't say, Rabbi so-and-so interprets the law like this. He said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. I say unto you, this is the standard that the law has always taught. Even more so, he doesn't just interpret the law with authority. He says that the law and the prophets are fulfilled in himself. And he even distinguished himself 
from the prophets who came before, saying, thus says the Lord. Instead, Jesus says, I say to you. Jesus is not merely another prophet, and he certainly is no mere ethical teacher. So many so-called Bible scholars love to talk about the ethical teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, as if that is all this sermon teaches. Yes, it does, of course, teach us about ethics. It does teach us about how we ought to live. But ethical teachings do not come with these kinds of claims of authority. Ethical teachers don't claim that they themselves are the sources of righteousness. This truly is is an astonishing level of authority. But here's here's the thing. We, We don't have that kind of authority. We have been commissioned to do as Jesus did, to warn others not to build their lives on foolish, erroneous foundations. But when we do so, we do not appeal to our own authority, but to the one who has been given all authority. What did Jesus say when he commissioned the apostles? All authority has been given to me. And on that basis, go and make disciples. This should empower and encourage us. For it is not on the basis of our own words and our own authority that we go and tell others of the only foundation for righteousness. It is based on the authority found in the words of Jesus that we do this. He is our authority. He is the authority we appeal to. It's not about what you can say. It's about what Jesus has already said. Yet even though we are not claiming to be the source of authority, that will not count for much in our postmodern world. An appeal to any authority as a source of truth will be seen as arrogant and bigoted. In an age where every authority is questioned, the kind of astonishment that we can expect will be fueled by anger and disgust. And yet when people respond with confusion or an angry, how dare you? All we can point them to is this. You say, you're angry with me for what I am saying. These are not my words. These these are Jesus' words. This is what he has said. And it's upon his authority that I say them to you. So as, as kingdom citizens... This is what we have the privilege of doing. It's not just that we have to go and make disciples. We get to go and make disciples. It's a privilege. We must point away from ourselves to Jesus, the one whose authority we appeal to and the one upon whom we are calling others to build their lives upon. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters. His words are the source of righteousness. His words are the solid foundation. And it is upon this foundation that we can withstand any trial. And it is on this rock, on the basis of his perfect righteousness, that we will stand on that day when we enter his kingdom. For the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven is only found in believing and doing the words of Jesus.
Let's pray. Lord, let us be wise and not be fools. Help us to trust in your words that we would build on our lives on the only solid foundation. And Father, I ask that you would be working in our hearts today that anyone here who has not built their lives on the foundation of Christ would come to their senses and do so. Lord, if there is, and we know that there are so many lies in this world that try to convince us that there are other foundations that we ought to build our lives upon. So Lord, let us, let us not cease to build on the foundation that we have in Christ and on to some other foundation that will just leave us uh, with a destroyed home. And Lord, let us be encouraged now that we get to go out into this world and tell others of the, of the foundation of righteousness that we have in Jesus that it is not about the works that we can do that approve us before God. It is about what God has already done for us. And that we would do so encouraged and empowered, not because it is, it is about our words that we do this and our authority, but because it, you are the one who has authority. And it is on the basis of your authority that we do this work that you've called us to. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing the closing song. Okay, round two. Well, you might know the song off the heart. Solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less. Sweet.
darkness fills his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is charge for this week. In the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not merely warn of the two paths of wise and foolish living. Jesus presents the only firm foundation that we can wisely build our lives upon that will stand on the day of judgment. His words. Those who believe in his words and who demonstrate that trust by doing what Jesus taught are the ones who have wisely built on the, upon the solid rock of Christ. Believing and doing what Jesus taught is the only way that the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven is to be gained. And when the flood of God's judgment comes, it is, the only, it is only the righteousness found in Jesus that will allow us to withstand. So let us not be fools that build upon erroneous, unsound foundations. And we must warn others to not be fools as well. But take heart, for it is not by the authority of our own words that we will do this, but by the authority that we have when we share Jesus' words. I leave you with this benediction. Matthew 28, starting at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in peace.